0: Chapter six of Iconoclastic Memories of the Civil War Bits of Autobiography by Ambrose Bierce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What Occurred at Franklin For several days in snow and rain, General Schofield's little army had crouched in its hastily constructed defenses at Columbia, Tennessee. It had retreated in hot haste from Pulaski, thirty miles to the south, arriving just in time to foil Hood, who, marching from Florence, Alabama, by another road, with a force of more than double our strength, had hoped to intercept us. Had he succeeded, he would indubitably have bagged the whole bunch of us. As it was, he simply took position in front of us and gave us plenty of employment, but did not attack. He knew a trick worth two of that. Duck River was directly in our rear. I suppose both our flanks rested on it. The town was between them. One night, that of November twenty-seventh, 1864, we pulled up stakes and crossed to the north bank to continue our retreat to Nashville, where Thomas and safety lay. Such safety as is known in war. It was high time, too, for before noon of the next day, Forrest's cavalry forded the river a few miles above us, and began pushing back our own horse toward Spring Hill, ten miles in our rear, on our only road. Why our infantry was not immediately put in motion toward the threatened point, so vital to our safety, General Schofield could have told better than I. Howbeit we lay there inactive all day. The next morning a bright and beautiful one, the brigade of Colonel P. Sidney Post was thrown out up the river four or five miles to see what it could see. What it saw was Hood's head of column coming over on a pontoon bridge, and a right pretty spectacle it would have been to one whom it did not concern. It concerned us rather keenly. As a member of Colonel Post's staff, I was naturally favored with a good view of the performance. We formed in line of battle at a distance of perhaps a half-mile from the bridgehead. But that unending column of gray and steel gave us no more attention than if we had been a crowd of farmer-folk. Why should it? It had only to face to the left to be itself a line of battle. Meantime it had more urgent business on hand than brushing away a small brigade whose only offense was curiosity. It was making for Spring Hill with all its legs and wheels. Hour after hour we watched that unceasing flow of infantry and artillery toward the rear of our army. It was an unnerving spectacle, yet we never for a moment doubted that acting on the intelligence supplied by our succession of couriers, our entire force was moving rapidly to the point of contact. The Battle of Spring Hill was obviously decreed. Obviously, too, our brigade of observation would be among the last to have a hand in it, The thought annoyed us, made us restless and resentful. Our mounted men rode forward and back behind the line, nervous and distressed. The men in the ranks sought relief in frequent changes of posture, in shifting their weight from one leg to the other, in needless inspection of their weapons, and in that unfailing resource of the discontented soldier, audible damning of those in the saddles of authority but never for more than a moment at a time did any one remove his eyes from that fascinating and portentous pageant toward evening we were recalled to learn that of our five divisions of infantry with their batteries numbering twenty three thousand men only one stanley's four thousand weak had been sent to spring hill to meet that formidable movement of hood's three veteran corps why Stanley was not immediately effaced is still a matter of controversy. Hood, who was early on the ground, declared that he gave the needful orders and tried vainly to enforce them. Cheatham, in command of his leading corps, declared that he did not. Doubtless the dispute is still being carried on between these chieftains from their beds of Asphodel and moly and Elysium. So much is certain. Stanley drove away Forrest and successfully held the junction of the roads against Claiborne's division, the only infantry that attacked him. That night the entire Confederate army lay within a half-mile of our road, while we all sneaked by infantry, artillery, and trains. The enemy's campfires shone redly, miles of them, seeming only a stone's throw from our hurrying column. His men were plainly visible about them, cooking their suppers. A sight so incredible that many of our own, thinking them friends, strayed over to them and did not return. At intervals of a few hundred yards we passed dim figures on horseback by the roadside, enjoining silence. Needless precaution. We could not have spoken if we had tried, for our hearts were in our throats. But fools are God's peculiar care, and one of His protective methods is the stupidity of other fools. By daybreak, our last man and last wagon had passed the fateful spot unchallenged, and our first were entering Franklin, ten miles away. Despite spirited cavalry attacks on trains and rear-guard, all were in Franklin by noon, and such of the men as could be kept awake were throwing up a slight line of defense enclosing the town. Franklin lies, or at that time did lie, I know not what exploration might now disclose, on the south bank of a small river, the Harpeth by name. For two miles southward was a nearly flat, open plain, extending to a range of low hills through which passed the turnpike by which we had come. From some bluffs on the precipitous north bank of the river was a commanding overlook of all this open ground, which, although more than a mile away, seemed almost at one's feet. On this elevated ground the wagon train had been parked, and General Schofield had stationed himself, the former for security, the latter for outlook. Both were guarded by General Wood's infantry division, of which my brigade was a part. We are in beautiful luck, said a member of the division staff. With some prevision of what was to come and a lively recollection of the nervous strain of helpless observation, I did not think it luck. In the activity of battle one does not feel one's hair going gray with vicissitudes of emotion. For some reason, to the writer unknown, General Schofield had brought along with him General D.S. Stanley, who commanded two of his divisions, ours and another, which was not in luck. In the ensuing battle, when this excellent officer could stand the strain no longer, he bolted across the bridge like a shot and found relief in the hell below where he was promptly tumbled out of the saddle by a bullet our line with its reserve brigades was about a mile and a half long both flanks on the river above and below the town a mere bridgehead it did not look a very formidable obstacle to the march of an army of more than forty thousand men in a more tranquil temper than his failure at spring hill had put him into Hood would probably have passed around our left and turned us out with ease, which would justly have entitled him to the Humane Society's great gold medal. Apparently that was not his day for saving life. About the middle of the afternoon our field-glasses picked up the Confederate head of column emerging from the range of hills previously mentioned, where it was cut by the Columbia Road. But ominous circumstance! It did not come on. It turned to its left at a right angle, moving along the base of the hills parallel to our line. Other heads of columns came through other gaps and over the crests farther along, impudently deploying on the level ground with a spectacular display of flags and glitter of arms. I do not remember that they were molested, even by the guns of General Wagner, who had been foolishly posted with two small brigades across the turnpike, a half-mile in our front where he was needless for appraisal and powerless for resistance my recollection is that our fellows down there in their shallow trenches noted these portentous dispositions without the least manifestation of incivility as a matter of fact many of them were permitted by their compassionate officers to sleep and truly it was good weather for that sleep was in the very atmosphere the sun burned crimson in a gray-blue sky through a delicate indian summer haze as beautiful as a day-dream in paradise if one had been given to moralizing one would have found material aplenty for homilies in the contrast between the peaceful autumn afternoon and the bloody business that it had in hand if any good chaplain failed to improve the occasion let us hope that he lived to lament in sack cloth of gold and ashes of roses, his intellectual unthrift. The putting of that army into battle shape, its change from columns into lines, could not have occupied more than an hour or two. Yet it seemed an eternity. Its leisurely evolutions were irritating, but at last it moved forward with a toning rapidity, and the fight was on. First the storm struck Wagner's isolated brigades, which, vanishing in fire and smoke, instantly reappeared as a confused mass of fugitives, inextricably intermingled with their pursuers. They had not stayed the advance a moment, and, as might have been foreseen, were now a peril to the main line, which could protect itself only by the slaughter of its friends to the right and left however our guns got into play and simultaneously a furious infantry fire broke out along the entire front the paralyzed center excepted but nothing could stay those gallant rebels from a hand-to-hand encounter with bayonet and butt and it was accorded to them with hearty good will meantime Wagner's conquerors were pouring across the breastwork like water over a dam. The guns that had spared the fugitives had now no time to fire. Their infantry supports gave way, and for a space of more than two hundred yards in the very center of our line, the assailants, mad with exultation, had everything their own way. From the right and left their gray masses converged into the gap, pushed through, and then, spreading, turned our men out of the works, so hardly held against the attack in their front from our viewpoint on the bluff we could mark the constant widening of the gap the steady encroachment of that blazing and smoking mass against its disordered opposition it is all up with us said captain dawson of Woodstaff. i am going to have a quiet smoke i do not doubt that he supposed himself to have borne the heat and burden of the strife in the midst of his preparations for a smoke he paused and looked again a new tumult of musketry had broken loose Colonel Emerson Opdyke had rushed his reserve brigade into the melee and was bitterly disputing the Confederate advantage. Other fresh regiments joined in the countercharge. commanderless groups of retreating men returning to their work, and there ensued a hand-to-hand contest of incredible fury. Two long, irregular, mutable, and tumultuous blurs of color were consuming each other's edge along the line of contact. "'Such devil's work does not last long, and we had the great joy to see it ending not as it began, but more nearly to the heart's desire. "'Slowly the mobile blur moved away from the town, and presently the gray half of it dissolved into its elemental units all in slow recession. "'The retaken guns and the embrasures pushed up towering clouds of white smoke. To east and to west, along the reoccupied parapet, ran a line of misty red, till the spitfire crest was without a break from flank to flank. Probably there was some Yankee cheering, as doubtless there had been the rebel yell, but my memory recalls neither. There are many battles in a war, and many incidents in a battle. One does not recollect everything. Possibly I have not a retentive ear. While this lively work had been doing in the centre, there had been no lack of diligence elsewhere, and now all were as busy as bees. I have read of many successive attacks, charge after charge, but I think the only assaults after the first were those of the second Confederate lines, and possibly some other reserves. Certainly there were no visible abatement and renewal of effort anywhere, except where the men who had been pushed out of the works backward tried to re-enter. And all the time there was fighting. After resetting their line, the victors could not clear their front, for the baffled assailants would not desist. All over the open country in their rear, clear back to the base of the hills, drifted the wreck of battle, the wounded that were able to walk. And through the receding throng pushed forward here and there horsemen with orders, and footmen whom we knew to be bearing ammunition. There were no wagons, no caissons. The enemy was not using and could not use his artillery. Along the line of fire we could see, dimly in the smoke, mounted officers, singly and in small groups, attempting to force their horses across the slight parapet, but all went down. Of this devoted band was the gallant General Adams, whose body was found upon the slope, and whose animals' forefeet were actually inside the crest. General Claiborne lay, a few paces farther out, and five or six other general officers sprawled elsewhere it was a great day for Confederates on the line of promotion. For many minutes at a time, broad spaces of battle were veiled in smoke. Of what might be occurring there, conjecture gave a terrifying report. In a visible peril, observation is a kind of defense. Against the unseen, we lift a trembling hand. Always from these regions of obscurity we expected the worst but always the lifted cloud revealed an unaltered situation the assailants began to give way; there was no general retreat at many points the fight continued with lessening ferocity and lengthening range well into the night it became an affair of twinkling musketry and broad flares of artillery then it sank to silence in the dark under orders to continue his retreat Schofield could now do so unmolested. Hood had suffered so terrible a loss in life and morale that he was in no condition for effective pursuit. As at Spring Hill, Daybreak found us on the road with all our implementa, except some of our wounded, and that night we encamped under the protecting guns of Thomas at Nashville. Our gallant enemy audaciously followed, and fortified himself within rifle reach where he remained for two weeks without firing a gun, and was then destroyed. End of Chapter 6 End of Iconoclastic Memories of the Civil War, Bits of Autobiography, by Ambrose Bierce. Recording by Winston Tharp